Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. If you want more information on Team Rhino Outdoors, visit www.teamrhinooutdoors.com. Tonight I only have one co-host, it's Brad Hoppy with Musky Mayhem Tackle. You can find more about Musky Mayhem Tackle by visiting www.muskymayhemtackle.com. Our guest for tonight is a BMX pro who just came off the DL with a few cracked ribs and a concussion, Andy Vyth. Andy. Um, oh, sorry. Andy is actually with Infamous Musky Tackle. He just pretends to be a BMX bike riser, and he had a, a recent injury. So, Andy, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. I'm recovering nicely. And, uh, yep, one of my many hobbies, many expensive hobbies. So I'm glad to say that I have hit my deductible for the year and ready to move on with the summer. How you feeling now, Andy? I'm I'm pre- I'm pretty good. Um, shoulder is separated. That's a little messed up. Ribs feel fine. Head's a little cloudy. So if we have any awkward pauses or whatever, I is whatever. I'll I'll come back. But um, <laughs> yeah, pretty bad concussion. A couple three broken ribs in the back and uh, separated shoulder. And but that was just about five weeks ago. So. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, put a damper on my summer. I, Jeff and I had a trip planned uh, with Jeff Van Remortal, and that turned into a Jeff having a trip planned with Jeff uh, Van Remortal. <laughs> and because uh, I couldn't cast, and I'm still at a point where I probably can't cast. Um, so pound, so enough. pounders are out then, huh, Andy? Yeah, I think so. Single girls only. Well, that's good. <laughs> Make Brad and Carrie ha- happy anyways. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know what? You know, Andy, we could have used you on that trip. Typically, you're my good luck charm on filming. You know, what does it usually take? Like an hour to put a muskie in the boat if you come with the cameras are rolling? Or less, I think. I think, uh, yeah, less. All right. Half hour, maybe. Well, we probably should film then later this fall because, you know, yeah. I could use that. It, it makes it, it takes the pressure off right away. Yeah. It's funny you say it takes the pressure off, but like as a person coming west, I really appreciate it. Um, but it's always kind of a pressure felt thing, and what a relief, you know. Once we, so far we've gotten fish right, or I've gotten the fish right away, and uh, we get it in the bag, and what a relief. I mean, it feels a lot like a tournament, you know, that you get a fish on film and kind of take some of the pressure off the rest of the of the deal. So, no doubt. So, um. To get back to the intro, we're talking with Andy Vyth from Infamous Musky Tackle. He makes uh, small batch musky baits. Um, Brad and I figured that tonight's going to be more of a roast of Andy since we know Andy well. Um, hopefully you guys enjoy it. Andy, why don't we start out with a little bit of background on, on uh, making baits. What got you started with uh, the whole bait making process? Well, um, I started fishing very early. We had a place up in Vilas County and... Uh, you know, started fishing at like the age of two. And as with most people, I had a couple encounters with muskies on the little lake that we had a place on and, and uh, kind of turns, I think for most people, it turns into like a little bit of an obsession once you have a few encounters where you just kind of, kind of, they haunt you a little bit. So um traveled to Canada with my dad and a couple of his uh, friends um, one of his lifelong friends is Mark Stock, which um, I know, uh, I think both of you know, Mark Mark Stock Sr., but, um, and then, uh, so they're lifelong friends, and then 
my friend, his son, Mark Sakunier, he was in Canada, or he was, sorry, he was overseas at the time, deployed. And um, so anyway, so he had given me a phantom lure, and I'd never seen a phantom glider before, and gave me that to try. And man, it was just crazy, the action that I had on that thing. And uh, one thing with the wood, the old wood phantoms, they had a lot of belly roll, and I just kept losing fish. I mean, I would say, no lie, 15 fish I lost. And you could literally see the fish hit the bait and the bait sideways in the water, and I'd pull the bait right out of its mouth with no hooks. And I sat down with my dad, and I'm like, man, I think I can make this, you know, or something similar. You know, I want to try to make something that runs a little bit more upright. So, but kind of that infatuation with baits started really with the Phantom. Um, I had I had a number of normal baits, I would say, quote unquote. Uh, but the Phantom was a whole different ball game at the time. You know, this is 2004, and Todd's paint jobs were incredible, incredible. And uh, so, kind of staring at that and looking, and and did a little research. And I, you know, had the advantage of that. I worked in a hobby shop as a kid and sold airbrushes and, and paint supplies and things like that so i had some airbrushes and a compressor and i had a full wood shop and so i i made one glide bait and it functioned um i didn't ever catch a fish on that particular one i didn't use it very much and then um kind of started the whole process of trying to figure out how to make baits as consistent as possible when making them out of wood so and that's kind of been my focus over the years i mean it's turned into something maybe a little bit different um but but always the focus of just really trying to make a very consistent wood bait and anybody who's ever tried to work with wood knows that that's a tough proposition because the wood in itself is inherently uh inconsistent so obviously on top of the uh glide baits that you make when uh when did you decide to start playing around with crankbaits well um so yeah so 2004 is when i started and i started under the name trophy seeker tackle um and i did you know little shows and i had the glide baits i had two sizes of the shocker it's always been the shocker so i bait and then um i made a, what i called a tipsy beaver and it was a little um wood jitterbug with a big rubber tail on it and um so i travel around to the little shows like jeff would know about the musky magic show in new london here which was at a i think a high school or something right and and then uh um uh, yeah, it just kind of went from there. I, I started um, putting stuff on Muskie first. This was before I was on Facebook or anything, and the Internet wasn't super popular. But then I found Muskie first and started looking at all the pictures and stuff that people were doing elsewhere and started repainting baits, I guess. And at that point, for whatever reason, I kind of stopped making my own very much, you know. Um, I was selling to a local shop here and I was just making a couple little batches a year, but then I started getting requests for repaints on baits. And then, um, I think that's really how things kind of took off. So in 2012, um, I started, you know, I'm like, okay, well, people like my paint jobs. I should put them on my own baits. You know, it seems kind of odd to just put them on other people's baits. So I started introducing the shocker to Musky first, which got it out there you know a lot broader than just the local wisconsin area that i was and um i think about 2014 um came out with the six gun which was made for green bay six, six inch shed 
style bait, square look, which is important on Green Bay, and um, and a shallow running bait. And and about that same time, about 2013, I rebranded to Infamous, um, just because I never really liked the Trophy Seeker name, and um, took on uh, one of my best friends, Aaron Colby. I took on, been asking him for years to help me, and he finally finally uh, agreed to start to help with some of the woodworking with like the product the production side of it for for shows that that's kind of when the pink bait started i think about 2016 then i went to an eight inch with a peacemaker and essentially was just trying to make a bigger version of the six gun and then 2018, we introduced to the public the 12-inch model, the Maduce. So, Andy, I, I ended up with the Maduce this spring with you here, and what an incredible bait. Um, once people see that thing in the water, um, <laughs> I don't know what else you could say about it. It just It's somewhat violent. You can tone it down, um, but it's an incredible, cool swimming bait, and I see it you know, having a bright future in my boat for sure. Um, why don't you talk a little bit more in depth about what those baits actually look like and what, what they're all about. Sure. Um, so like I said, originally when I, the first crankbait that I made was the six inch, the, what I call the six gun, and you'll see kind of a pattern with the crankbaits. Um, uh, one of my hobbies is, is gun. So um, the six gun, I wanted to call it the gunslinger, but there was another bait out there called that because of my thought was because of Brett Favre, and it's a Green Bay-based bait. For whatever reason, it's, to me at least, on Green Bay, the square look uh, tends to produce better. Um, and, and realistically, I've, I've had good luck all over with that square lip, and I, I think you have two in Minnesota, Brad. But, so essentially, I was trying to achieve um, a six-inch shad shape, um, but in something that was a really shallow running bait that you could get back away from a board because we're, you know, open water trolling essentially on Green Bay and that didn't get too far down. You know, so with 35 feet of line out, it's only 5 feet down, which is perfect um, for our, our depth of water there. A lot of the, the flats are only 9, nine to 10, 11 feet deep, so um, just getting it back from the board and then my thought, keeping it a little bit away from the board and away from that disruption because um, they are pretty pressured fish. So, and then again, so when I went to the Peacemaker, I was just really trying to replicate that um, to an eight inch. And I tried a plastic lip and I tried basically just trying to scale it up and it, it, it ran, but it didn't run with that kind of hard action that the other one did. Um, so I just happened to make a lip if you've seen either of the bigger crankbaits, the aluminum lip is pretty strange, you know, triangle bill, but it's got a little bit of a squared off end on it. Not a coffin lip, but a unique lip. And um, I made one and I put it in the water and I was just absolutely dumbfounded by the action. I never seen anything like it. So I, I was able to replicate that consistently. And uh, that's been, I would say that's probably been my best selling bait. I mean, again, I have small batch, so it's not a ton of numbers a year but um probably my best selling bait and of uh of all of them probably one of the better producing ones too just because you know with trolling people have for whatever reason people have a hard time throwing a, a high-end glide bait that can sink you know so so they could potentially lose that but then yeah the mod juice was the same same concept again is to try to make a giant peacemaker and i found that incredibly difficult when i actually tried to do it to when you get to a bait that big there's a lot of little cues 
to actually get the debate to run defense, have a decent action, but then still be somewhat stable. And uh, it took me a little while, but I'm really happy with the action. Um, it's, it's got a hard pound to it. It's a 12-inch crankbait with a square lip. Which, uh, boy, I don't know if there's any other ones out there, but I'm trying to do something different uh, than the pack. And, and I hope that people are running those because I, I really have a, a lot of confidence in it for such a big bait. You know, the other neat thing that I noticed, Andy, and I've always known this about you, you know, your your paint jobs are exquisite to say the least and um i think some of that comes from that hobby shop days that you were talking about um i know i've talked to you about it at different times and the the thing is about that modus that you that i ended up with from you i don't know if i should say that you gave it to me because it might piss a lot of people off I, i'm i'm one of those people <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway um you know you look at it and it's really hold on let me interrupt let, let me interrupt you again uh, you know that friend that he was talking about, that Mark Stock Jr.? Yeah, I know him. Yeah, yeah. You, you know him pretty well, right, Brad? He comes over pretty often. Yeah, him and I, you know, we're pretty good friends with Andy. You'd think that maybe him and I would have one of those baits, but apparently not. I don't understand. <laughs> Mark's got quite a few of my baits. I don't know why he keeps saying that. Because he can. I got like one. <laughs> All right, all right. Continue on, Brad. I just had to bring that up, you know. <laughs> on with the roast. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, you know what it amounts to, though, is uh, you know, you look at the paint, and I remember when you walked in the shop with it, Andy, and I'm like, wow, that is really cool. But where it really, really shined is when it was in the water, and uh, once I seen it in the water, I'm just like, wow, totally flabbergasted with uh, your paint abilities. That's for sure, Andy. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I hope what that translates to to people that are actually using paint is that I'm using a lot of really high-level paints, and and part of that is that they're very, very metallic, high-pigment metallic. And so when you say on a crankbait, when when you see that thing in the water, it is throwing off an incredible amount of flash. And and you know. I really think the only other way that you can achieve that sort of flash is with a, like a foil or something like that. Um, and I, I've always just, if you know how a foil is actually made, I've always had a kind of a, a leery, a leeriness to, to, to sell a whole lot of those just because, you know, your temperature can, there's a lot of adhesives and stuff involved in that. And I worry about, about everything staying together with the, with the foil. And I think I have a pretty good, pretty good method for foils but but you can really achieve the same thing with using the right paints right using the right metallics and pearls and all that stuff and and if you watch any of the demo videos and for that matter the one that that you did brad where we when we were fishing together and you see those baits in the water you you wouldn't believe the amount of flash that comes off them in the water and uh and that's all just paint so I hope that that translates. That it's not. I understand that you don't have to put a paint job like that on a, on a bait. It's not the, the fish doesn't care. But at the end of the day, I hope that some of that translates to to uh, an attractant too. You know. Oh, it definitely does. And you know, in my open water trolling, I don't know. Maybe I've said it before in the podcast, but one of the most important parts to um, my baits, in my opinion, in the open water. And not not only in the open water, actually, but um, having that extra flash, that extra shine, it definitely calls fish up. There's no doubt about it. And so 
I look for those foils. I look for the hot stamp stamping. I look for that that paint that's going to have that reflective uh, manner in it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and so, I was amazed when we were out by you at just how clear that water is because I've fished some pretty clear water, but man, that stuff is clearer than anything I've ever seen. So pretty amazing. Yeah, it is amazing, and I think um, a lot of times that's maybe where it matters a lot too. You know, and that that water being as clear as it is, I mean, they could see that thing. I mean, it's almost like a mirror going off in the sunlight, right? You know. So I really feel that you can call some fish out from a long distance away to come at least check things out. Agreed. I guess a lot of guys are going to want to know the, talk about the process of bait making, what kind of what goes into each bait. I kind of want to know just so that I can understand why it takes you, you know, three months to make us 20 baits at a show, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. That was part of the roast, you know? Um, (laughs) anyways, no, like just for the user, most people don't, most people aren't out there building their own baits. So kind of let's go through the steps like and, and give me an idea like timeline like how long does it take you start to finish hour wise to make one of these baits let's just say we'll go with a peacemaker. Yeah so I've never actually figured out an exact time like put a time card to a bait to figure out how long it makes takes to make one bait and I've been asked that so many times so many times and I think I honestly have never done it for my own sanity because I think I wouldn't be real happy as a result there's there's so many steps but i have a pretty good idea for a batch of just say eight peacemakers um how long it takes for each step um and one of the hardest things to to really manage and especially like show season this time of year i make very few baits in the summer we're busy we're we're racing and we're doing all of our different things but in in winter when it comes time to get going i i have to keep things moving um so i need to i need to kind of pace everything so that i've got some peacemakers being in the in the building process and i've got some trackers in the sealing process and i've got baits in all the different um stages of of completion and that it makes it probably the most efficient for me to be able to move around because there's so much lag time between. I mean, the, the epoxy true coats faster than a lot of the other stuff I, I've used, but you've got, a, you know, a, essentially probably six coats of epoxy and, and you've got time between each coat. Um, so just to start from the beginning, Aaron helps me with a lot of the show baits and he gets them, he, he gets the wood, he cuts them out. Um, in the case of the, the gliders, he, he weights them. Um, with the peacemakers, he puts the rattle and the weight in them, and then I get them. Um, and then I do the finished woodworking. Um, I put cut the lip slots in, I do all the hardware, and um, I get all the woodworking portions done, and then I go to sealer. And I do that before the hardware, and, and my my thought process with that is now I have every hole, every penetration point that there could be in that bait, and then I soak them in sealer. And my hope is is that even if water penetrates through a hook point or um, through any of the different parts where the hardware is attached or the lip's attached, that that wood is sealed and it's got a barrier before anything else happens. Um, so then that has to sit for about two days after that's done. Um, just to make sure that that's good and dry. And then I do go to the 
assembly portion, I guess you could say, if it's true um, through wire or whatever it is, the lips get attached, the wire gets put in, the hardware gets attached in the case of shockers and peacemakers and the lips and the wire, and then uh, all this epoxy and different stuff. And then, then they go to, to epoxy sealer, and then they get two to three coats of epoxy sealer, depending on the baits. The modus gets more just because of um, all of the through wire and stuff. And then there, again, needs to have a couple of days of drying uh, before I can sand them and then start the painting process. So it's a long, drawn-out thing. And, and, and the end of the, end of the day is I can't make a bait in less than a week with my process. Like if I started one day, I, I could not make a bait in seven days um, because there's so many steps that need to cure and dry before the next step can happen. Sounds really easy. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, and then again, that's why I don't ever figure out exactly how, how much time it takes to make a bait. I just kind of go off of that. But like if a show is coming, I have to have my baits at a certain point on a certain day or they are not going west to the show. And Jeff knows pretty good about that with me. So. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm aware. So, you know, amongst that process and all those different steps, um, is there a particular part of this bait making thing that you really enjoy and is the rest of it just kind of a job or do you kind of just enjoy the whole process and all together at one? Well, and maybe partly due to my personality, um, I stagger all those things. I really think it's faster for me when I'm trying to do a show set that I have different stuff in different processes. But the, the other good side to that is I'm never doing one step for very long. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not putting lips in a hundred baits. I'm not putting. I'm not doing the woodworking on a hundred baits. I'm, I'm staggering stuff so that it, all the different steps. Even though I have to do them a couple times during, say, one show's um, batch, I, I, none of it is ever for more than, you know, at least a couple hours. I guess um, the part that I hate the most by far, and it's probably the easiest part, is. Uh, the scuffing or sanding of the baits after the seal epoxy is on and before paint. And it's probably the easiest step. It's just time-consuming. I'm just using a red scuff bed, a 3M red scuff bed, and, and sanding to give adhesion from the epoxy. And uh, and I just hate it. And probably partly because I want to get to painting and I've got to spend like six hours scuffing baits. And it's just such a tedious thing that it's just a step you know it's a it's just something i have to do so um probably my favorite part honestly is the detail painting at the end um the gills and the fins in some cases and just a kind of and it's just a thing of seeing something come to fruition where you know all these other steps kind of get to that point of okay this is what this is going to be that's interesting, Andy. Um, one thing that we didn't mention, I, I'm not sure, how many years ago was this? I know you talked about you started when you first seen a phantom bait. Um, mm -hmm. What year was that, that you seen that phantom bait, and where did it kind of evolve from there in years? Um, yeah, so 2004, um, it was either 2003 or 2004 was our Canada trip, and right when we got back from that, I got the woodshop and started messing around. Um and like I said, it was about 2012 that, and I was just selling little batches 
to uh, there's a little sports shop in town here called the Sportsman, and um, just selling like dozen, two dozen baits to him once a year, twice a year. And there's a couple local guys that would would buy stuff from me, and then those couple little shows. Um, but then 2012, I I think 2012 or into 13. Uh, rebranded to Infamous, and that's kind of where I really started. Um, I guess spending more time on the painting side of it. Um, I've always had this focus on trying to make the baits really consistent when they run, which, you know, when people, you know, just inherently, I'm not complaining, but people talk about do people even use your baits and are they just collectors and, and stuff like that. It's it, it bothers me because of the amount of time that me and Aaron really spend on trying to make every single glide bait run the same, and it's so hard to do. And every single peacemaker run the same. And um, and so, you know, the when when I started focusing a little bit more on the painting side of it, um, things became a lot more popular um, with with people. Um, but that really changed things too, and it, it, it was something that I never really kind of saw happening. And I'll just share a little story with you. Um, you guys are both familiar with pretty high end baits. So probably about that 2012 time, there was a there was a, a forum post on Musky First that said, "Do you want people to use your baits?" Or in the basement base section, "Do you want people to use your baits or collect them?" And I said, "You know, it, I really think for most people." you really want to see somebody catch their fish, their first fish, the biggest fish, the same thing with a guide. But you you really want that something that you built turns into a catch for somebody else. And um, and, and I said, it's like, I, I really want people to use stuff, but it would be pretty neat to have a point where people collect the baits like that of uh, uh, HR gliders or... You know, there wasn't a lot of that at that point, but, and it's just so funny now because it's it's almost like a double-edged sword where I'm so blessed that people like what I do, um, but at the same time, when they're traded like baseball cards back and forth and stuff, it's sometimes a little bit hard to take because at the end of the day, it's like you really just want people to use them too. So uh, kind of an interesting interesting outlook i guess maybe on it i'm certainly not complaining that people collect my stuff and and i'm so blessed that 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 there is such a good amount of people that that say such nice things and and collect the baits and everything like that it's just a you know it's a it's a double-edged sword yeah there's no doubt andy i mean even for myself as a bait builder you know i mean i want to hear about these stories you know i want to hear about somebody's first fish I want to hear about their personal best. I mean, that's what keeps you going. That's what keeps you wanting to build more baits. You know what I mean? You know what it takes. I mean, you just explained how many hours you put into those baits. And um, to duplicate all that and make them run and everything else, I mean, our world is a little bit easier with the blades. But in the same realm, we still got to have quality products and, uh, and products that people are willing to throw. So, Oh, definitely. If you, if you started changing the different brands of blades you know and and the, and the brands of blades or brands of beads or anything becomes somewhat inconsistent on your end you're going to definitely see a difference and maybe some people won't notice that but you'll you'll know exactly i mean quality is is number one and um i don't know we take a lot of pride in that and i know you do as well Andy. yeah definitely 
Um, one thing I wouldn't mind touching on, and I don't know if you guys mind, but I would kind of like to touch on just the process of how to, how you come up with a new date, um, because I think that might be interesting, and it, it might actually be something that would get people to think about wanting to do something on their own, you know, and and dabble into that process. For sure. I think- well, in that case... Well, in that case, I'll take a nap. I'll let you and Brad hash that one out. You guys wake me up when you're done. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of input on that one, but... We're going to have a quiz at the end. Whoever answers the most questions right wins the date. Right. Cool. Right. You know what's crazy, Andy, is um, you know, you're talking about that, and I actually have a prototype sitting right next to me right now on our, on our kitchen bar. Oh, um, let's talk about it, Brad. No, I'm not talking about it. Chicken. <laughs> yeah. I got a people, people that don't know probably don't realize bread and carries are very innovative and um, and you know I've gotten to do a little bit of work with them over the years with some of their prototype stuff and and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of that goes into that and there's there's some really cool ideas out there that hopefully we'll get to see at some point yeah but, you know I mean that that's what it's about too and I Honestly, you know, I don't care. Even a blade bait, we try to throw it at least a year before we release it to the public. And the biggest reason for that is, sure, it, the blades have to spin and this and that. But at the end of the day, we got to catch fish on them, too. I mean, we're not going to sell something that isn't going to get bit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's deeper definitely. than just functionality. It's got to function with the fish, too. Mm-hmm. So. I, I don't know. I, we'll see. That's why I don't want to talk about this bait that we got sitting here. Um, it's yep. pretty unique. It's totally different than anything anybody's ever seen in the musky world. Um, I think, and I believe that it's going to work, but uh, hopefully tomorrow we can go see if it's uh, actually going to be something worthwhile. Very cool. All right. Well, enough about Andy. Let's talk more about this prototype, Brad. This is the stuff I want to hear about. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know what? I am very tight-lipped about it, and the reason I am is because it is that unique. And um, I uh, I spent a good part of the day um, playing with it, and I think I, I threw it in the pond this evening. And it looks like it could be something that's uh, very worthy of the fishing community. So. I don't know. Hopefully, we'll get something put together here shortly. I know good things come out of that pond, Brad. Last time I was there, we were playing around with the mimic, right? And uh, you know that that one's a winner already. So I expect nothing less. Exactly. All right, fine. Well, Let's talk to Andy. Sorry, Andy. To- totally unique. <laughs> Uh, so I, well, Andy, let's talk about the process of, uh, of how you come up with a bait and, and, uh, how you go about it and the steps you take to prototype it and make sure that it runs and, and all that. And I'll let you and Brad just talk about that. Wake me up when it's over. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of funny that Brad said that, that you test something for a year minimum. Um, because I think that's something that <clears throat> is really important and, it, and it's hard as a, as someone, especially in, when you're newer you got something, it works, uh, functions, it catches fish, whatever it is. But if you don't get all the little things hammered out, and this is something that Brad taught me years ago, and there's certain little things in wor- in this world that little things that I, I hold on to dearly, things that people say or whatever, and, and Brad said, make it, I hate to say it, but idiot-proof. Like, 
make sure that every single one works the same and that there's no like, well, yeah, that happens because of this, that you have it dialed in that it works and, and, and anybody can grab it off the shelf and they can use it and, and it's consistent and, and everything. And that takes time. And it's hard for someone to, to be excited about that bait and want to show people and everything and to, to skip those little steps to making it right first and then start throwing it out there and selling them because we've seen it over the years. I mean, it's not, it, there are, people will buy a bait. If it looks decent, people will buy it. People will try it. Um, but you just want to make sure that for your own sake, that you, you really get it out there in the right way. Um, so yeah, so in prototype process, um, let's just take the six gun, for example, because that one was one that gave me a little bit of trouble initially. Um, you make one that works, and that usually takes a dozen or so. Um, say with a crankbait, where you're ch- trying different shapes and different widths and uh, weights and lip angles and tie points. It's amazing how such a small change in a tie point on a crankbait can change how that bait runs and the speed that that bait runs and all of those things. Um, so, like in the case of the six gun, I, I probably made over a dozen baits, and I had little notes written on them. They're just white and then cleared epoxied over and then little notes for the lip angle and this and that and then getting it to run right. And then one, once I found one that worked, um, then I tried to make 12 more. And I, I kind of go through the process of, you know, trying to do that as consistently as possible and maybe making a few jigs. Um, to, to, to cut that lip angle correctly and to put the, the weight points and the hook points and everything in the same spot. <clears throat> and then, um, and then, yeah, if you can make 12 of them that run consistently, then you can probably make more. So then we, we, you know, Aaron and I hold on to those jigs and we make usually a pair of jigs. Um, and those that way, if I make the bait or if he makes the bait, the bait runs the same. And then we, take our notes and I have a master of each of the baits that I have ever made realistically that I wanted to make more of. And some of them I've only made a few and maybe I'll return to them in a few years. Um, and then, uh, and then I try to make, you know, another dozen and then start using those for testing. And I, at this point, I will not sell a bait until it's ran for a couple years. Uh, the Magus we, we we made, I think I made the first one in 2015 and kept it super quiet and made sure that we had some out there and that we, like you said, caught fish on it and that the action was consistent between them and then the, the, the depth running was consistent between them and just, you know, consistency as a whole. And then, uh, and then once we were really, really comfortable with the fact that they were going to, do what I wanted them to do. Then I decided to release them um, in 2018 um, because I, 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 you know, I really just don't want anyone to ever return a bait because it doesn't run right or has a problem with paint. And it happens with what it happens. But I can honestly say that since I switched to TrueCoat and I've really focused on making sure everything seals properly, I've only had one bait come back in two and a half years that was something that was a legitimate claim, you know, that it, it failed, you know, and and that was based on, I believe, a moisture content problem in the wood. Um, but aside from that, 
you know, you, you want to make sure that it's right. You know, don't put something out there that that people are going to turn around and and have problems with because you can do a hundred things good and that one thing that you do wrong is something that's, that people are really going to to remember. So oh, they'll, they'll eat you up on it, that's for sure. Yeah. There's yep. no doubt, you know. And, and I've, I've taken my lumps, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it's a challenge, man. There's no doubt about it. You know, you, you, you put all this time and effort in something and, and it sometimes is a bomb. And I thought it was interesting that you just mentioned that, you know, your very first piece that you know is going to work and that's your master. You keep all of those. And I just heard a guy, we had a guy come here from Finland actually. And, um, he had created a bait and he was showing us some of his baits and he was at ICAST and he came up to Minnesota and South Dakota and was kind of cruising around a little bit. But, uh, Anyway, he was telling me the very first bait he made, he actually made it out of a cutting board. So he had this plastic cutting board that he is using, and he looked at it and went, wow, I could make a bait out of this. So he he went into making the bait, cut it all out, and took it out and immediately started catching fish, and he casted it off. And so he had to start at ground zero again. So. That master can be very important. <laughs> it can. And with the peacemaker in particular, I kind of had a similar situation where, you know, when I make a prototype at this point, I simply seal it with epoxy. I put on the approximate amount of coats, like with a peacemaker, say five coats, and, and it's just clear. And you can see the wood and you can see where the weights are in the rattle and all that stuff. And you're... That way, if I ever have to go back to that, I can see all those things, right? It's it's not under paint. Um, but I actually, Aaron and I were up on Razorback Lake up in Vilas and doing some filming and some testing and stuff before it was released, and uh, I got it stuck in a rock bar. And, and we literally were like, okay, well, let's run this thing. There was a rock bar, you know, it's about 40, 35, 40 feet of water, and this rock bar comes up to eight. Well, let's set the bait at 10 to 12 feet down and let's run it over 10 times and see what the bait does and maybe not the smartest move at that point and I didn't really think that through but then we got it stuck in the rocks and you can see it down there in the rocks but it's it's October almost November and the water's 38 degrees not getting in the water and uh, here's my bait down in the rocks stuck and we, we did end up getting it, it took quite a while um, but yeah that kind of made me rethink Rethink that a little bit of like, well, you should probably be careful with that initial one. So you can more. That's crazy. Did you, uh, <laughs> talking about losing baits? I don't know. I, uh, I had a good friend of mine and I was joking with him. I said, you lose that bait in the rocks. You're going swimming. And, uh, it was in September. The water was getting down there a little bit. And I was joking, of course. And I didn't realize he had hung the bait up. And the next thing I know, I look up at him and here he is stripping down to his underwear. And I'm like, what are you doing, Gary? He's like, I hung that bait up. I'm going to get it. I'm like, get back in the boat. Nope. He went right in after it. But so you do what you got to do sometimes. But uh, yeah. And that wasn't even a prototype bait. It was just a good bait. <laughs> sure. Well, and you know, the, nowadays there's these guys out there making these you know, different lure retrievers. And with the way that the market's gone, and there's so many great bait makers out there now. And a lot of those baits are, you know, more expensive, but it's such a great investment to have that lure retriever that you can put on your anchor line and drop down and 
and I would say nine times out of ten, you can get him back. I mean, we've gotten, I think, everyone back so far since we started using those. So. Which one are you using right now, Andy? Um, I honestly don't remember who made it. Um, it was one that I saw on Muskie Flea Market. The guy was making, and I think they were about 35 bucks shipped. And so I grabbed one because we had just had a occasion where we had lost a uh, I shouldn't say we we hadn't lost it. We had caught Aaron and I were up on a fall trip up north, and we had caught, I believe, six or seven muskies on a TRO purple perch headlock, ten inch headlock, and and all of a sudden we got this thing snagged in a in a uh, a crib, a wooden crib, and could not get it out, and we didn't have anything. So it's kind of a funny story. I want this bait back. We've caught all these fish on it. It's the second day of our trip. And so I, I had the bright idea, well, I'll hook my frable net to it, to my anchor line, and then we'll, care, we'll clip that to the carabiner, we'll send it down. For sure, the net will get hooked on the bait, and then we'll pull out the whole works up. And then I got my net stuck in the, in the crib. And now I'm in a real, real mess because now I don't have a net. And we ended up getting the net back, and I bent the hoop up pretty good. And we actually ended up getting the bait back, too. But immediately when I got home, we... Uh, I ordered a, a lure retriever to try to mitigate those problems. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I had a net problem earlier this year, too, with uh, our buddy Mark Stock. He ended up losing my good net. Um, I don't know if he told you about that, Andy. No, he forgot to tell me that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to talk about that at some point. Uh, it's good sure. stuff. But did your net have a hole in it, Brad? Because I, I got a good hole in a net story. <laughs> yeah, I, it did. But you know what I did is I, I took some fishing line and I tied it off so it was filled back in. That would that would make sense. That's what a good guide would do. <laughs> yeah, right. Could be the fish for a lifetime. I'm just gonna, you know, zip tie it or whatever. <laughs> well, you know, I got that video coming up on YouTube eventually of a little mishap that me and Mr. Jensen had earlier this season. That was pretty fun. It's it's yeah, always fun when they swim through the back. It is awesome. Especially when they're still attached to the bait. Well, unfortunately, this one wasn't. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I guess one other thing to think about with, with uh, I think, is overlooked a little bit would be uh, wood selection. And I've kind of learned, partly from all the all the, the repaints that I did, a lot of times those came in damaged. It would be something that was damaged and and i would learn a lot from that from where that bait failed you know whether and i i, I know that jeff and i a couple of years ago had this conversation with a certain bait that he had some issues with and um you can always tell where the bait fails at the last line of defense right so if it cracks all the way down to the wood you have a ceiling issue or you have a wood issue um if it if, if the paint comes off at the sealer, well, then you know that you didn't get good adhesion there. So it's kind of that last line of defense. And um, and the, the, it all starts with the wood. And what I found is buying really consistent wood. Um, I've got a friend who owns a high-end furniture shop and makes really, really, really nice stuff. But I we buy all of our wood from him. And I can kind of assure that I'm going to get, like with the Shockers, I'm not going to Menards or Home Depot or anything and buying the maple from there. I'm buying furniture-grade maple, and all of that maple is very, very consistent in its density. 
and uh, you don't get the heartwood, which is the center of the wood, and it's much denser. And you get a good action, and you get a good sink rate. That's really consistent, and that goes with everything. You know, I I try to buy the, the most straight grain cedar I can for all the crankbaits and cut it, and then let it sit. So I'll I'll be cutting wood in September for for baits for this winter, and I'm just rough cutting modules out, and I'm putting them in a, a closet in my attic, which is a really dry spot and then making sure all that moisture comes out. And then I actually have a moisture meter that I use that looks like a taser. It's got two probes, and it's got a button, and you hit it, and it sends an electrical impulse to it. And it's like 25 bucks probably. Um, but that will tell you that that, that wood is at a, a low enough um, density, of water density, that you can make it and seal it, and you're not going to have issues. Because a lot of times with those issues, um, or baits crack or whatever, it's as simple as that there's moisture in that wood yet. Now you put a whole bunch of coats of, of whatever on top of it, and that moisture is still in there. And so eventually once it gets some heat or some cold or a combination or whatever the case, maybe some sun, um, then you'll have an issue. So that's a really important step to those bait makers out there that want to want to make something out of wood is think about that as a first very first step is that you start with something that's a really good product of wood and is dry enough to and that goes with that patience piece too that you make sure that you don't you don't rush it and you don't you know you give it the time so that the debate lasts forever i mean i've got some grandmas some wood grandmas that are from the 50s and they've, they've been ran and they've stood the test of time and that's a pretty amazing thing if you think about it. What kind of wood were those original grandmas made from, Andy? Um, the, the, they were made from redwood. Really? And yeah, yep. And I've got, I think I've got 15 of the, the original wood grandmas. And um, part of that, you know, bait maker thing is, is that I'm such a history nut. And, and my collection of, of baits really consists of maybe early you know, some old baits and a lot of cool old top waters and stuff, but a lot of early versions of something that's really popular now. And the grandma's a perfect example of that, that, you know, in the early 50s, you know, or, you know, somewhere in the 50s, he starts making these baits, and and uh, John does, and he's going with his dad to Canada, and with these huge, I mean, if you think about the 50s and what people were using for baits, headings and and little Fluger crankbaits and all these little baits in the 50s, and then you think about a 13-inch wood flat-sided grandma. It's amazing, right? And so this big chunk of cedar, or uh, sorry, redwood, and then he would cut a trough out of it and lay this uh, eighth-inch copper wire that he bent up, and then it's such a neat process that he actually cuts this channel in the bottom of the bait, lays the... the uh, through wire in and then fits these little tiny strips of wood in between the hook hangers and glues it all back together. And it's just such a cool um, process of, I guess as a furniture maker or whatever, that you think about all the fitting and, and time that went into to making those baits what they were and how far ahead of their time they were. No, it's, a, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, again, what a... <laughs> You know, being the original is, is a huge deal. And think about how many baits have been knocked off on the original grandma. I mean, yeah. 
they still work today, like you said, even in plastic versions, and it's a go-to bait. There's no doubt about it. Sure. And I know that's a big piece of your uh, of your puzzle and open water stuff is definitely the grandmas. But and, and maybe you can because you've got a pretty good knowledge of history too. And I've kind of poked around quite a bit, being that I, I am so into those. I I really think that that was the first flat sided crankbait. Like I can't think of another bait that came out before that. But and especially with crankbaits, most of them were turned on a lathe. And uh, it, I, as far as I know, it's at least a giant one that was meant for muskie. That's for sure. I, I really think that's for sure the first flat-sided crankbait. When you think about the reflection that we talked about before with the sides, and he was using a little bit of glitter and these really high-pigmented metallics back in the 50s and 60s, and even some foil. Actually, my oldest one is a 9-inch, and it's got this... Uh, a foil that's actually more of like a fabric, like a metallic fabric. It's uh, like a silver wire almost fabric um, that they used. And you think about that in, in uh, 1959 or something like that, I think is when that one was made. How, how far ahead of the time and kind of that same thought process of like he was trying to use materials um, to, to achieve a goal that were, you know, meant for something else, obviously. Yeah, that's just totally bizarre, honestly. I mean, uh, cool, cool baits, no doubt about it. What are some of the other old baits that you've uh, collected then since you're into that, uh, Andy? Well, some of them aren't that old. Um, but like I said, with going along that same line, I have one of John's original Lake X baits in wood. And I have no idea how many he made. I didn't even know he made wood. Um but kind of when that whole craze came out with the Lake X with the with the fat bastards and the and the um, cannonballs and cannonball juniors, I found a wood one and I was like, I need to have that because that that's kind of my collection. Is those those are something that's really popular now that is originally made in wood. Um, I've got a bunch of East Coast stuff, um, some Wake Makers. I don't know if you've ever heard of. Um, Gail actually, but I think he lives up in northern Wisconsin. Uh, some of the nicest topwaters ever made, and he was a small batch guy that you had to know somebody to get one. Um, I've got a number of those. Um, and I don't think he makes baits anymore, but they are amongst the very nicest topwaters you will ever see. Mostly creepers, uh, a couple of globes. Um, I've got some, like a Penske Pike and... Um, some spinda stuff from out east. Um, yeah, just a, just a lot of just really neat older wood stuff. Um, some of the really old stuff, you know, too, but to me that doesn't do as much as much for me. Um, I've got some of the uh, Tony Rizzo's crankbaits, his little wood deep diver crankbaits. Those are really neat little baits. Um, and then I've got a couple of the big, I like the big stuff too, so I've got some of the Canadian stuff, uh, Periwinkle, some wishmasters, a couple of wishmasters, and, and and you know that that sort of stuff, kind of the, the master craftsmen from Canada. Yeah, the the wishmasters. I mean, <laughs> what a crazy bait that is, you know. And then yeah. there's been a few that have kind of halfway duplicated it, but you know, yeah. it, there's so many cool baits that have been made over the years, and um, I don't know. It's it's cool that there's guys out there like you trying to preserve some of that, you know. Yeah. Well, and I'm running my wishes, too. I mean, you know that we were, when we went out, we did a little video, which I'm still waiting for Jeff to 
gimme on the Wishmaster, but we we being that was such clear water, we ran the Wishmaster a little bit and got some underwater video of it, which I don't know if anybody's really ever done. I'm sure maybe somebody has, but kind of neat for people to see because they are such a rare bait. And at this point, not too many people are running them actually. But when I get into a situation with a lake like where you and I were fishing, um, where it's wide open, I got no problem putting that thing out and, and trying to get it chewed. So. Yeah, they're great baits, and I know they've caught some fish. So, I mean, yeah, it, <laughs> it's, uh, I've spent some time on them as, as well. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Andy, that uh, that footage that you're looking for, yeah, I'm holding that hostage until I get my ice-cold purse <laughs> pizza maker. <laughs> Once, uh, once I see the ice cold perch peacemaker, you can have that footage. You know what's kind of funny, Brad, is I sell Jeff about 100 or 120 baits a year, and he sells them all. It's like <laughs> I just told you a whole bunch of baits, and now you sell them. You know, I don't, I don't well, know. hold on. like that's, Let's back this up a minute. So this goes back like two years in Chicago. I wanted an ice cold perch shocker, and I was going to steal it. And he's like, no, 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 let's just sell it. I'll I'll make you one. I'll, I'll make you one. <laughs> You know, so I said that was two years ago in Chicago, uh, Brad. I still don't have this ice cold perch shocker I was looking for. So now I've given up. I'll just take a peacemaker if I can get one of those. But well, I'll tell you right now, Jeff. I'm in the defense of Andy, this is how he makes some money. Giving <laughs> away baits is not how he makes a living. Yeah, I'm willing to pay for it. Yeah, no. I'm willing to pay for it. You might. I'm going to only pay wholesale though. You might pay double here in a little bit. I'm gonna probably have to. Right after we get off the phone here, Brad's gonna be showing him a my dish. <laughs> yep. uh, Pretty soon, I'm just going on the musky flea market. I'm gonna get myself a shocker. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. What do you think? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't go on the musky flea market. What? What's all out there? Honestly, I have gotten myself so far out of all of the loop of. On Facebook and the flea market and all the other groups, I've gotten so, you know, the raffles and all that stuff. I've gotten myself so far out of that stuff that I have no, you know, I, I, uh, I used to be pretty, pretty into that. And I, I found myself getting stressed out about it, um, whether it was my stuff or other stuff or whatever. And just, I just, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze for me. So I, I, I just got, you know, I'm still part of all the groups, but I just don't pay any attention to them or follow them anymore, and I kind of just try to try to do my own thing, and we've been pretty happy ever since. Well, that's good. Well, can I get you riled up a second then, Andy? So what's your thought on uh, guys flipping baits for, like, twice the price of what you sold them for? Well, you can just pass if you want to. I just want to bring that up. Well, that's okay. I think it's kind of the elephant in the room when you talk to, you know, I've listened to the podcast, and you talk to, you know, like Chris, Chris Pia, who's a friend of ours, and and uh, making, you know, a production bit. And then when you talk to a guy who's making something and really trying to pour their heart into it, it kind of goes back to that thing of what do you want? And you have to be, at the end of the day, when I finally found peace with everything, was like, I'm going to sell the bit for what I'm happy with getting. And then whatever happens after that, I really can't worry about it. You know what I mean? And um, so I... I don't like it, but I think to some extent in the in the recent year or two that's kind of um, kind of washed itself out because there was a couple of years there, and you know we would go to Chicago and we would sell you know a shocker for sixty bucks, 
and our 50 bucks, and, you know, when we started, I know my first shows with you, Jeff, I think we were selling the, sh- the small shocker for $35, and the bigger one was like 45 if I could be wrong. Yeah, but, the very first then, time we were in Minnesota, we did that. The regular yeah. size shocker was 35 and the bigger one was 45 Yep. Yep. And then, and then you, and those were glitters too, so that was an extra step. And, and then you go, it's like people are going right in the parking lot and flipping them on eBay and um, on flea market and stuff. And, and you, you can't, to some extent, it's supply and demand. If I'm, if I'm going to be a small batch guy and I'm only going to make a hundred or 150 bits a year, I can't really, you know, you can't want people to want it, but then only want them to want it so much, you know? So I have to be happy with, with what I do and, and, just whatever happens from there happens from there. I, again, I just I hope that people, whatever they do with them, whether they hang them on the wall and stare at them like I do with some of my stuff, or they put them in the water and use them, I just hope that they're happy. You know what I mean? And at the end of the day, I hope that people see it. There's there's a pretty big... Um, I get a lot of stuff about people that are like, well, you don't need a bait like that to catch fish. Absolutely not. The majority of the fish that I catch every year are on Suex and and Medusas and and you know bucktails. My biggest fish ever was on a junior cowgirl, plug for bread. But and it the reality is is you don't have to spend a hundred dollars for a bait. You don't have to spend more than that for a bait. You don't need anything. The fish doesn't care about the fin on the side. But I'm trying to do something. I'm trying to make the best bait I can make. You know, I'm not trying to make. In every aspect, I'm trying to make the best bait I can make. And at the end of the day, with the way people have responded to that, I'm humbled by it. And I just have to be happy that people do respond that way and that they do like it and, and you know, keep keep pushing forward. It's, I mean, it's a good thing. It's a good thing you brought all that up because, you know, we always say, like, sometimes I think when guys get into muskies, they worry too much about, like, getting that hottest bait, that newest bait, that small batch bait, um, that kind of stuff, all that hard to find stuff. They worry about it too much. So they go out and they spend a bunch of money on these baits and you know, that's great. They're awesome. But when you're just getting started into them, you really got to learn how to use, use the tools. We talked about it last week with Jim Sarek. You got to learn, you got to learn the tools and you got to know which tools to use. And so they, they spend too much time chasing all these baits down, whereas they really just need to find some, like you said, a suic. That's a great option. The other option, you know, we, I sell I sell a dive and rise bait from Brotherhood Baits. It's a really great bait, too. They'll both catch fish. For the new angler, he shouldn't be chasing down the Brotherhood Bait, in my in my opinion. Now, if you want it and you like it and you want to collect it, that's awesome. You want to use a small batch bait maker bait, that's great, too. I have a lot of friends that make small batch baits. I'm not trying to rip on them at all. I think they're awesome. Um, but for the new guy, they don't have to spend crazy amounts of money to get into the sport. You can go buy five baits for 20 bucks a piece and, you know, be good for a, a trip or two. Yep. That's right. And I agree with that. I, I, I kind of, you know, we've talked about this. I've talked about this with a number of people and it kind of goes back to the thing of like, I'm not sure why people worry so much about what other people do, but there's, if this is just how human nature is, there's, there's more than one kind of car. Almost any car will get you from point A to point B in some fashion. But what do you want? You know what I mean? What are you trying to do? And, and, and 
human nature is is that some people really like nice things, and so that's that's an option for those people. I don't. I agree a hundred percent. If you're getting into musky fishing, you should not go overboard with those baits. They're not magic. Um, I think that my process is build a hopefully a more durable bait and a and a consistent bait. Um, but you can get you can most certainly catch fish on a number of other gliders. Um, I hope that people choose mine for the right reason. You know that it's 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 something that I'm trying to make the the best possible bait there is. And and there is when I hear that too where people are like, Well all gliders are the same and you can catch fish on everyone. Yes. At times like Steve says you can throw a pine cone out there and catch fish. But I, I hope that I spend a lot of time putting into the effort of making those gliders run really nice, you know, and trigger fish and making the crankbaits run really nice and trigger fish and all that. But hopefully that people appreciate that and, and understand that, that there's a lot that goes into that. And if you ever run made of it, you'll get it pretty quick. <laughs> But uh, but it's it's not always the fact of like people think that they need that to catch fish. A lot of times it's just a choice that people are making to because they want something nice. And I and man, talking to people, I just, just I just really appreciate all of that from people that really see it as maybe uh, a combination of a tool, but it's a tool that it's, it's fishable art is what people have, have called it. And it sounds a little weird probably saying that yourself, but. But that, at the end of the day, it really is what you're trying to do. I mean, I could paint it all white and give it to Steve and it'll catch fish, but I'm just trying to make it as nice as I possibly can. And for no other reason, realistically, at the end of the day, of that I like that myself. You know, I, I, I like progression and I like to see that and, and I like nice things, you know, so... Um, I just hope that, that, that people can see that because there's a lot of people out there that just think that it's it's dumb and it's a fad and whatever. But the real the real realistic, realistic part of it is is that all of us really put a lot of effort into these baits, you know, and really put a lot of our hearts and souls into it. And just take it for what it's worth, you know. Joe and I respect a lot of these builders out there, and I love talking to those guys at the show. But um, you know. Joe and Dave Carmanos is putting out a lot of bits and they're really, really high-end bits. And I got some utmost respect for him because people really use them, too. It's a really nice crank bit, and they run really nice, and, and people are actually using them. But just take it for what it's worth is that we're, we're trying to, to, to make something nice, and, and not everybody appreciates that, but that, that's why. It's not for the money of it. The money just comes, you know, things that come with it. So. Yep. Yeah, I totally get it. I mean, like you talked about with nice stuff. I mean, I like I uh, the DK baits. I have some. Um, I've been lucky enough to get a couple of them. The Brotherhoods. I have some of those. You know, those are pretty hot. Uh, I have some Nutch baits and Baker baits and just small batch baits. I got a couple of True Glides and yeah, I have. Uh, yeah, I got some Blue Waters. I got a Blue Water Tribute. I mean, you've seen how much stuff I have, so I I certainly understand why guys want it. I just mm-hmm. think that sometimes the new musky angler gets hooked, caught up in it and he thinks yeah. that he has to have those baits in order to catch fish. And like yeah. I said, I don't want it to be any disrespect towards small bait batch makers because like I said, I have a, you're, you're a good friend of mine and mm-hmm. I certainly respect what you do and I like what you do, but I just want new musky anglers to understand that mm-hmm. they don't need to start at a shocker 
to catch a fish on a glide bait, you know? So. Yep, the Hellhound is a real nice bait. Not really nice, easy glide bait to run. Yeah, I'd personally recommend a Squircle, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> a Squircle, yeah. Yep. Just kidding. A, hell, a Hellhound is obviously a great bait. I've watched Steve work it well for <laughs> a long period of time. A Phantom is a great glide bait, too, for guys looking to get into musky fishing and they're looking at, you know, some glide baits. So, Andy... With that said, we're probably past the uh, one hour mark. I know you got to get up early for work. Why don't you talk a little bit about if people are looking to maybe get a shot at one of your baits? Why don't you talk about how they can get it, how they can get a shot at one of your baits? <laughs> kind of a loaded question. Um, so again, this is just a, <laughs> it's just a hobby for me. Um, so uh, your best bet, honestly, and I know this is tough logistically, but is to come to TRO at one of the shows and. Um, and we limit, you know, we part of that whole thing with with uh, trying to get to a basis to as many people as possible and trying to mitigate uh, the flipping and stuff. We do limit the baits to one per person in theory, and uh, and that spreads spreads them out a little bit more. But yeah, TR, I basically sell exclusively through TRO at the shows, and um, a few baits I'll put up in in summer, but. Life is so, everybody knows, life is so busy in summer that um, that kind of goes off to the side. So it's a, it's a winter hobby for me. It kind of gets that fishing itch itched during the winter when every, everybody else is high bait or whatever they're doing. So we'll be on ice fishing and that. I'm, I'm in the basement chugging along. And um, so the best bet is to, is to come to the shows or just follow us on Facebook and every once in a while something will pop up. And... Um, and really appreciate um, all the support that we've gotten so far over the, the first 15 years or so that we've been doing this. And for people that want to know the Facebook page, that's Infamous Musky Tackle on Facebook. Uh, check out Andy's work. It's uh, gorgeous, unbelievable. Brad can attest to it. This, I mean, it's some amazing stuff. Is Brad even awake anymore? I'm still here. All right, I was just checking because normally you're the one that jumps in talking to me all the time. I don't even get an, I don't even get a word in. I get left you one one little break and I didn't hear anything from Brad. I'm like, man, I know he's been working a lot lately in the shop. Um, is he sleeping or what? No, I I just didn't want to interrupt. You guys, no, you're good. It was good stuff. Yeah, you're good. Well, I hope at the end of the day this will kind of open open up maybe some eyes to what goes into the base and and at the same time. Feel free to reach out to me if you ever, you know, I'm at a point in my life now where I really enjoy the fact of that the different bait makers, we can get together at the shows. And we had a really interesting conversation this year. Tony Stricker, uh, Joel Peterson, um, Jeremy Knudsen, I believe, Nooch, and, um, and Jason Furman talking about something so simple as putting a stripe on a bait. How do you put a bar? when it's not like a perch stripe, but just a bar. How do you do that? And I swear, every single person had a different way to do that. And and so if you ever want to talk baits and want some pointers and that, feel free to reach out. I'm more than happy to help and, uh, and kind of get you pointed in the right direction. You know, that's one of the coolest things about you too, Andy, is that you're never scared to share. And, uh, I, I truly appreciate that, and you've helped me a ton over the years with different ideas, and, and especially on the paint side. I mean, it's just amazing what you're capable of doing. Well, you've helped me a lot also over the years. We've done a lot of stuff behind the scenes that 
and I've learned a lot about the industries from you, both of you guys, honestly. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's once you figure out that, that people, there's enough room for everybody in the industry and we can, we can all work together. Cause realistically, if you really think about it, we all like to musty fish and, and in a lot of cases with the bait makers, we all like to create something. If you can kind of come together a little bit with that, boy, it's a whole lot happier place. And Joe Peterson always talks about the European guys and how collective they are and how they have these bait making collectives and they all talk and they all work together and they're all friends. And boy, at the point where you can really tell yourself that, that, that we're all friends and we're all trying to do the same thing and there's room for everybody and there's plenty of muskies to, you know, that, boy, that's a happy place to be. And I, and I really hope that that keeps moving forward that way, that we can have these groups to talk and, and kind of bounce things off of each other and, and learn. So as cheesy as that sounds, it really is a, it really is a neat thing. I don't, I don't believe that's, that's uh, cheesy at all. I think, uh, that's what it's really truly about. It's supposed to be fun. And I think so many of us, I mean, myself included at one point in my life, we forget about this is supposed to be fun. People go out there, mm-hmm. fish hard, share hard, you know, the whole deal. And, mm-hmm. uh, and everybody benefits. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So Andy, we're going to likely do five shows this year. You promised 50 baits at every show. Is that right? <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> I got my kids. <laughs> hey, my kids are getting older, so at some point I'm going to start using them um, for some process of this. And my wife, um, she's super supportive of me in the winter. I mean, I'm in the basement. Um, we didn't really get to talk a whole lot about the paint side of it, but I'm in the basement, and my paint boots and my paint boots makes noise because I use car paint, and uh, we got to get all that stuff out. But my wife is super supportive, and she. She allows me to work these crazy hours on this stuff and to travel with you guys and do the shows and really enjoy the kind of that fruition of all that work. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with that. But eventually these kids are going to get old enough where they're going to have to start helping me. I like that. Child labor. I got the child labor thing going on this week too. Yeah, I got a 13-year-old and 11-year-old. They want some YouTuber merch that they want to buy. So I'm making them earn money in the shop. Cause of course their favorite YouTuber is not their dad. Surprisingly, it's shocking. Right. Um, they have other people. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you figure if, if you fish as much as Jeff Whitman fishes, somebody's got to run TRO. So Melissa's doing a great job and, uh, the kids are doing a great job picking up some of that talk too while you're all over the country fishing. With them. Come on now. I've been in the shop for three weeks straight. I haven't been on a fishing trip in three weeks. <laughs> I actually pushed one back from Steve because I was too busy with everything. So, but next week I'm getting out. I'm, I'm out of the shop. Mel's in charge again. She's going to get the employee of the month for August because I'm out. But yeah, I'm actually going to try to take Alexis with me to Hayward next week to, um, it'll be, we'll be gone actually when this one airs right now, we'll be just finishing up our trip. And um, hopefully we're going to get her first casting muskie. I've gotten her a muskie trolling. Let's hope we get a casting one now. Are you fishing with, with Steve? Yeah, we're back with Jensen and Hayward. I told him, I said, I talked to him today, and I said, the goal is a muskie. Let's go to the place we can find the most muskies. I don't care how big they are for this one. We just want one. So. Very cool. You'll get an update here soon on how that turns out, hopefully successfully. Well, hopefully it's hey, better. What's that? I said, hopefully that, that first fish casting is with your daughter. Your daughter gets the fish. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I don't care about me. 
Yeah, I don't care at all. It better be her. I'm hoping. I mean, that'd be that's that's the goal. I'm hoping to get her on a fish. Hopefully, yep. it's either a showgirl, a rabid squirrel, or a mimic. She's tired of me making. She's tired of me making her throw. Uh, I make her throw Lake X baits all the time because she can't get hung up in the weeds or anything else. And she's like, "Dad, I don't want to throw this thing anymore." I'm like, "But that's a that's an effective bait." But she's she's over it. She wants something else, so she'll graduate to bucktails this time around. That's awesome. make her a nice high school approach soccer. Yeah, yeah, I'll let her borrow mine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, throwing some salt in the wound. I th- that's what I was just gonna say. I'm like, so Andy gets roasted all night long. Now he wants to throw a little salt in the wounds. Thanks, yep, Andy. Gotta get him, Appreciate gotta get him it. Fired off before we done here. All right, well, that's episode 19. I'm out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Oh, yeah. Anyways, thanks for coming out, Andy. We really appreciate it. Uh, Brad, why don't you wrap up for Muskie Mayhem Tackle? Uh, If you're interested in Muskie Mayhem Tackle products, you can reach us at muskiemayhemtackle.com, or you can check us out on both Facebook and Instagram, and we'd love to hear from you. And if you have any input on the podcast, Jeff, why don't you throw them that? Backlash Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also email us at backlashpodcast at gmail.com. I had an email recently from a listener, and he had talked about wanting to know if we could know what guests were coming up so they could potentially post questions or, or know some questions that we could ask the guests to give them some more input. So Brad and I have been talking about potentially um, listing on our Facebook page you know, what what future guests will be having up, say, hey, we're recording in two weeks or two days or whatever it is, a day, it depends. Sometimes we know in advance what we're going to do. So if you haven't checked out our, our um, Backlash Podcast Facebook page, go check out Backlash Podcast Facebook. And what we'll do, I think we just kind of briefly kicked this around or I sent Brad a thing saying like, hey, Brad, what should we do about this? So that's kind of what I thought about was Facebook. We may consider doing that so people can give a little more input on the show because we've had people ask about that. Like last week we had Jim Sarek, and I'm sure there were some listener questions about that they would have liked to ask Jim. So maybe what we'll do is we'll try to take a few listener questions and ask the guests in the future. So if you haven't checked out Backlash Podcast on Facebook, do that and Instagram, and then check out our email if you have any questions. One other thing, Jeff, is we should uh... – Give a shout out to these guys. Um, we have gotten a few pictures, um, but if we could get some really, really good backlash pictures, we'd appreciate them too. So we could post them on Instagram and Facebook as well. Yeah, and also we've also had people ask, uh, want to know like more pictures on um, side imaging too. So if you have some side imaging pictures and you want, you know, cool ones, muskies, different structure, boat sunk, whatever, get us that stuff too. We'll start. We'll start posting some of that stuff as well. It'll probably be Carrie because Brad and I just fish all the time. <laughs> I think that is that pretty much all the details we have. On, oh, you know, the one other thing, too, is coming. We just did the final approval recently of Backlash Podcast shirts and hooded sweatshirts. We haven't decided where or if both Team, uh, team Rhino Outdoors and Muskie Mayhem Tackle are going to sell them. But we're going to do a, a limited run kind of, uh, I mean, Brad and I don't technically have any sponsors. Um, we do all of it for free. So if you want to show your support for the podcast, watch for that probably in about two, maybe three weeks. We'll have uh, some hooded sweatshirts some, some, and some T-shirts with Backlash Podcast, and we'll give you details on where we're going to have that. So I think that wraps up all the details on Backlash Podcast, right, Brad? 
For sure. Yeah, I think you hit them all. All right. And I'm um, Jeff. I own a company called Team Rhino Outdoors. If you want to check us out, we have a website. We sell a bunch of baits. Um, we don't sell any of Andy's baits because he's so awesome. He goes fishing in the summer or BMX biking and hurts himself. But we have a lot of other cool companies that are actually working, getting stuff done. You can find us at uh, TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. You can also find us on Instagram, uh, Team Rhino Outdoors. Facebook would be Team Rhino Outdoors. And we have a YouTube channel that you can check us out on. We put out new content uh, every single Sunday night during what would be our fishing season here in Wisconsin. So it's typically like June through the end of the year. Uh, this year, content's going well, so maybe it'll be longer. We'll see. We've also been putting out a few bonus episodes on Wednesdays too. So if you haven't, check us out, subscribe, do all that fun stuff. I think other than that, that's it for uh, Backlash Podcast for this week. We really appreciate everybody listening. The support that we've gotten so far in this podcast is, I'd say, short of amazing. And uh, we appreciate all the emails and text messages and everything uh, letting us know about the podcast. And if there's something else that you want to see, hear, guests, whatever, if you don't like me or Brad, that's fine. Most people don't. I think that's it, right, Brad? I think you hit it all, Jeff. Perfect. Well, once again, Andy, thanks for coming out. We really appreciate it. Everybody have a good night. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a good night, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot.